16. As we continue our series in the book of Acts, enjoying this wonderful account of the spread of the gospel through the witness of God's people and the power of the Spirit. Watching uh, this latter part of Acts, the, the life of Paul and his missionary journeys and as he's going through and we see the hand of the Lord and we see uh, in many ways increased success for him. And I'm looking forward to spending some time in Acts chapter 19. We're going to slow down a little bit in 19 uh, because there's just a lot going on in Ephesus. We're going to find Paul ends up in Ephesus uh, and there's just a lot going on there. I want to do the best job I can to help us understand the storyline and the implications, but also touch on some side points. There are some uh, side points. They're not the main point necessarily of the story, but there are side points, things mentioned that are important, I think, for us to address. Um, there are in the Christian life, too, and in Christianity, some issues that can be a sort, a sort of elephant in the room type issue. And there's some of those that come up in this chapter that we want to take time, I want to take time to lead us through, to think scripturally about these issues, to learn what the Word of the Lord teaches us on them, that we may benefit, understand them rightly, and benefit from them. So we're just going to slow down a little bit. Uh, This is a jam-packed chapter. But we will look this morning at chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And just to review, Paul has finished his second missionary journey, if you remember, he was in Corinth, and God promised to, uh, to be with him, to provide, to protect him, to provide a people to protect him. And he stayed there uh, probably about two years or so, 18 months to two years, uh, and just experienced a wonderful harvest in Corinth. Uh, came in really probably downtrodden, maybe doubting. Uh, we don't know for sure where he was, but it seemed that he came, and he says actually he came in weakness and fear with much trembling. And God came through and used him, and, and did wonders in Corinth. And, and then he left Corinth, finishing his second missionary journey, traveled, uh, touched on Ephesus quickly, and went back to Jerusalem, and, and went back, really, I think, to celebrate. He had made a vow. That was an expression of his gratitude uh, to the Lord. I think that's what he was doing, and we looked at it last week. Went back with thanksgiving and reported all that God had done, and then made his way back to Asia Minor again for the third missionary journey, And that's where we'll pick up in chapter 19. Let's pray first, though, before we read, that we might hear from our God who loves to speak to us. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the book of Acts. We thank you for all the things you have in mind for us through this section today and following. You're so gracious. You love to speak to us. And, Lord, we live by your word. We live by your word, and so we ask you to feed us, to speak to us. You'd use me in this as well, to serve your precious people. Thank you, Lord, for your wonderful grace and your desire to do these things. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Sorry, we don't have any overheads because of our technical difficulties, so you need to pick up your Bibles uh, and look at them, and I'm sure you do that already. Uh, If not, I think the ushers can get you a blue Bible. Um, If you need, just raise your hand a little bit. Okay, could... um, Thus, we just grab some of the blue Bibles which are on the bookshelf in the library. Thank you. We're going to be looking at chapter 19, and we'll be moving into some other sections as well. And it says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. 
there he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not heard. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him. That is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. Acts 19, 1-7. This story is the introduction, really, to what goes on in Ephesus for Paul, and it's an interesting story. Paul comes to Ephesus. He's made his way back. He's strengthened the churches in Asia Minor. He arrives in Ephesus. And somewhere along the way, he finds this group of disciples, these followers. And, and he probably detects that there's some understanding of the things of God there. Uh, he's interacting with them, and, and he, at some point, he recognizes these guys aren't quite getting it. There's something missing here. So he asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Wondering if, if they received the Holy Spirit, probably if, are they really believers? Are they maybe good observant Jews, or maybe they're followers of John the Baptist, yet had not learned that John was pointing to the one after him. And so Paul interacts with these uh, folks. There's 12 disciples, 12 followers, and he finds out that they basically don't know about Christ, so he, he teaches them about Christ. Luke is probably abbreviating what was the interaction. Uh, and so finding out that they didn't, uh, that they didn't understand they had only been baptized with John's baptism, John the Baptist, who had baptized for repentance and preparation for the Messiah. He pointed them to what John was pointing to, to Jesus. Probably preached the gospel to them. Uh, God worked. They responded. And then he baptized them as Christians in the name of Jesus. And then he laid hands on them, and they received the Spirit, and like Happened, happens elsewhere in Acts. They started uh, speaking in tongues and prophesying. So they come to Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit. And it's really another uh, example of people coming to Christ, a, a group of people who hadn't known about Christ, coming to Christ and receiving the new covenant uh, baptism of the Spirit. We saw that in Acts 2, didn't we? On the day of Pentecost. We saw that when... Peter went to Cornelius' house and preached Christ, right? The Spirit came on them as he preached, and they started speaking in tongues and prophesying. And now we see another group, this group that's kind of caught in a time warp of sorts. They've heard about John the Baptist. They know about him, but they don't know all that he taught. Paul brings the rest of the truth to them. They come to Christ, and the Spirit comes as a, as a, a, a sign of uh, the new covenant inheritance uh, comes, uh, we see tongues and prophecy, as we've seen elsewhere. Now, Luke, in the, this passage, I think, is doing a couple things. Uh, and that's what we want to look at first, is why does Luke have this? Why did he include it? It looks like, it's not clear, but it looks like in Ephesus, around Ephesus, there might have been a group of John the Baptist disciples of sorts. They probably weren't Orthodox. They maybe had lifted John up as the Messiah, himself or something we don't know for sure and the reason that we think that might be true is because the gospel of John was written by John not the Baptist but John the Apostle 
he ended up moving from Jerusalem to Ephesus and living in Ephesus. And when he wrote the gospel, he was, he was there. And in the beginning of the gospel of John, he talks about John the Baptist. And he makes it clear a number of times he's not the Christ. He's speaking of one after him. And it almost seems like he's taking extra pains to make it clear who John the Baptist was and who Jesus was. That John was pointing to Jesus. So, so um, you know that, that that's where he talks about uh, he was not... He was not the one. He was pointing to him. And then in John 3, John says, He must increase, I must decrease. So there's a whole big section in 3. And of all the Gospels, John, the Gospel John has the most about John the Baptist. So we can infer that perhaps John was addressing a problem in Ephesus and beyond. Also, it looks like Paul might have, when he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, had an emphasis on that as well. He's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, he says as well in Ephesians. So Luke was probably addressing this through his report of what went on. This issue that there was this group that, that had misunderstood John and they weren't Christians. And so Paul encounters them, they, they come to Christ. It also, I think, is a picture of the, the spiritual atmosphere in Ephesus. Ephesus is a wild place. We're going to see some wild things go on. Uh, it's a wild place. It's a wild spiritual atmosphere. If you read the book of Ephesians, written to the Ephesians, of any other letter that Paul has written, Ephesians mentions most about power and, and spiritual struggle and so forth. Uh, it was a place full of dark spiritual powers and all sorts of crazy stuff. So this is also, I think, a window into what we're going to encounter in Ephesus. And we're going to see things happen and we're going to watch the Lord do wonders through the gospel in Ephesus. And I'm looking forward to spending time doing that. But I wanted to take some time, because we haven't done it yet in Acts, to address the elephant in the room of speaking in tongues. And, and I'm sorry if you brought a guest this Sunday and thought, oh boy, you know, this, I love to bring a guest, but and then you hear oh, a message on speaking in tongues. Oh no, uh, one of those messages that are like one you don't want to bring a friend to. I apologize. Um, uh, or maybe you're thinking, oh, good thing I didn't bring that friend who was going to come today. Um, this is one of those issues that is, it's uncomfortable for us, and it's a little bit weird, perhaps. Sam Storms, in, uh, who is a, a theologian and pastor, a very reliable man, um, who enjoys this gift of tongues, coming from a very conservative background, uh, talks about this in his book. Just listen to, to his explanation. It's somewhat humorous. He says, I was raised in a tradition that viewed speaking in tongues as barely a notch above snake handling. Ignorant and undignified people spoke in tongues, probably with eyes rolled back in their sockets while on the verge of something akin to an epileptic seizure, or so I was led to believe. People who could read and write and hope to make their mark on the world, on the other hand, wouldn't be caught dead muttering that sort of gibberish or associating with those who did, or so I was led to believe. For people to reveal that they speak in tongues is to risk being perceived as mindless, spiritually flabby fanatics who periodically mumble while in a convulsive or hypnotic trance. And he goes on saying, I would simply encourage you to search the scripture, seek the face of God, and continue reading in his book. And we're going we're to continue looking through Scripture at this issue. So it, it, it feels like that for us. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's that, that big elephant in the room. The one that we hope isn't there when we bring our guests to church. Uh, but it is in Scripture, and it features prominently in Scripture, particularly in the book of Acts. And so we need to talk about it. It's in God's Word. If we, if we believe that God's Word is authoritative 
for our lives if we believe that there is a, an infinitely intelligent being, all good and glorious, and he's determined to have this gift and have it function in the church, then we need to learn about it. We need to understand it. We need to understand it biblically, and we need to wrestle with that sense of awkwardness to arrive at where God wants us to be. And so what I'm going to do is today we're going to, I'm going to talk and teach on the gift of tongues, and next week as well. So maybe you don't want to plan to invite your guests next week. But actually, that, we're, going to, we're going to go through the Scriptures, and we're going to be honest. And I think that's the best apologetic for people, to come and hear that we're honest with the Scriptures, God's Word sufficient, and we're still going to talk about Christ uh, every Sunday. So I, I don't think you need to do that. But we'll do that this over the next two weeks, because I want to help you understand, and I want to help you enjoy this gift. I'm teaching from the assumption, and I won't get into this in this particular message, but I'm teaching from the assumption that the gifts that God has given are present for the church today. And I have not found a, a valid argument in Scripture that, to say otherwise. Um, scripture is adequate to teach us. It's adequate to govern, to teach us how to govern these gifts. So uh, I'm teaching from that assumption. And if, if you're not in that place, that's okay. Uh, I would love to talk with you more. And we as a church have gone through teaching about this, why we believe the gifts are for today. Uh, we want to help you. I don't want to put you off with this, but I do want to inform you about how we would understand the scriptures regarding this gift. So, teaching from the understanding that this gift is for today, um, we're going to seek to learn and understand about it. So, here we go. Tongues. Tongues uh, occurs in the book of Acts. We see it in Acts. We see it in chapter 2. You've seen that already. We've seen, seen it in chapter 10 with Cornelius. We've seen it now in chapter 19 as well, this gift of tongues. It's also spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. And other than those places, it's really not in scripture. So God has given us these places to see it. But, but that doesn't mean that it's not important. It functions very importantly in the book of Acts. The word, I think, speaking in tongues kind of throws us off a little bit because it sounds weird. I mean, do you ever talk about you know, doing things in tongues? You know, I, you know, what else do we do in tongues? We don't use that phrase, speaking in tongues. It, it sounds really weird. Right? It feels, sounds really unusual. Well, the, the original word for it is... Um, is to speak in tongues, and, and that's kind of stuck with us, that, but that, that's not the best translation, actually. In the scriptures, when it talks about speaking in tongues, it means speaking in a language. I'm speaking in tongues right now, and when you talk, you're speaking in tongues, too, according to scripture. It just means speaking a language. Everybody speaks in tongues. You use your tongue to speak, and that was how they understood, that's how they, ex- they explained speech. It was tongue use. And so, Scripture, when it says speaking in tongues, it just means speaking a language. And it was understood, though, that this particular gift was speaking a, a foreign or unknown language. So, usually that was how it was understood. So, if, uh, if we were all speaking in English and someone came in speaking Portuguese, and we actually had a Brazilian church who's using our building, they were speaking Portuguese, we might say, if we spoke in the old way, well, those folks were speaking in tongues. What we mean is that they're speaking a foreign language. There's, and that's, that's how we say it. So, maybe the better translation would be, to speak in a foreign language, but we do use speaking in tongues, so I will stick with that terminology. But I just want us to understand, not kind of get freaked out by that term. The term can sound weird. It just means speaking in a foreign language. We see it function in Acts, in Acts chapter 2. You guys know that story, right? Where the day of Pentecost, uh, Jesus told them to wait, to wait in Jerusalem, to wait to receive the power of the Holy Spirit so that they could be his witnesses. That, that their being witnesses, and by implication, us being witnesses as well, is through the power of the Spirit in our lives. 
And so they were to wait to receive this new covenant experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. So they wait, and they're together in the upper room, the, the whole gang probably at that point, uh, 120 or so. They're in that upper room, and uh, they're seeking the Lord, and there's a sound like a tornado comes, and, and tongues of fire come and rest on top of their heads, and they're filled with the Spirit, and they start to speak in these other languages that they hadn't previously learned. And they, and they uh, end up somehow out of the house. We don't know when in the story that happened, but they're out in the house. They're out in the street uh, somewhere, and they're speaking in tongues, and a crowd gathers. What's going on? What, what's going on here? There's, there's, there, uh, and there's all different thoughts about what it is. People are hearing them, though, in their own languages. These multiple languages are mentioned there. Uh, they're hearing them speak the wonders of God in their different languages. And they're, they're saying, you know, well, these guys, maybe they're drunk. Um, and Peter says, no, they're not drunk because it's too early in the morning. And secondly, this is fulfillment of Joel 1. Uh, Joel 1, Joel 2, the, I think it's Joel 2 actually, uh, where the promise of the Holy Spirit being poured out and, and God's people all being filled and all prophesying. So that's what we see happening on the day of Pentecost. This, the pouring out of the Spirit, and it's marked by this speaking in tongues. Take note of that. The three times in the scriptures when we see a new people group encountering the new covenant experience of the Spirit, we see, we don't, we don't always see this everywhere in Acts, but in three prominent times where there's brand new groups receiving the Spirit, we see them speak in tongues. So it's a, it's a sign of the filling of the Spirit, this new covenant experience. And I think perhaps, and, and, and I'm drawing from commentators on this and in the scriptures, that what is going on in Pentecost in some ways is to be understood as a revo- reversal of what happened at the Tower of Babel. It's in Genesis 11. So in Acts 2, the Spirit is poured out. They start speaking in other languages, these multiple languages of the world, and they're speaking praise to God. They're giving God glory. What happened at the Tower of Babel? Remember the story, Genesis 11? They all spoke one language. They all came together, and, and yeah, Mark has pointed out to me that it's understood that Pentecost was the day that marked the Tower of Babel and the, the judgment that came on that same day. So they would have understood that probably better than we do. So they, they've, um, the, in uh, Genesis 11, we, we see that, um, that they came together, they had one language, and then they united together, right? They they went, uh, they went eastward, and, and in Genesis, when people are going eastward, it's understood at that time uh, that they're going away from God. That's what if you'll see. You'll see that pattern. They go eastward, and they, they find a place. They come together with their one language. They unite together, and they say, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us build a city. Let us build a tower to make a name for ourselves. So they, they have wandered from God. They have wandered away after the fall from God. And this is the story of humanity. They wander away and they wander far from God and they say, now, apart from God, let us make a name for ourselves. Let us find our own glory. And they unite together and they build, start to build this city and God says, look at what they're doing as they're united. We can't have this. Why not? Well, because God is merciful and gracious and he knows that that is destruction and darkness and, and to live and make a name for yourself apart from God is to be lost. And in his mercy and in his love for his own fame as well and, and the joy that we have in that, he wants to, to stop that. And you'll see, if you read through Genesis 11, he starts to work to draw people back. 
So he scatters them. He, he, he confuses their languages. He breaks their unity, and no longer can they make a name for themselves. And he starts to draw them back. So what happens on the day of Pentecost? You have kind of the opposite happening. God uses multiple languages that before had divided, now unites because it's one people receiving the Spirit, and they make a name for God. What are, the, what are they saying when they speak in tongues? They're, they're proclaiming the, the wonders of God. They're, they're glorying in God. And so it's a picture of, the, in a sense, the undoing of what happened in the Tower of Babel. The people coming together and speaking with one voice, though many languages, one voice, the praises of God. And so we can understand Acts chapter 2. We can understand what went on at Pentecost as a reversal and as a, what's called a redemptive historical event. And that's a big long word that just means it's part of God's plan to redeem mankind from the evils of things like Babel to himself, to build, them, to build us how we're supposed to be, to build us as people that delight in God, that work together, to build a tower that's called the kingdom of God in the Lord. And so it's a glorious picture of what God is doing in Christ in these days. And he will finish that. So it's redemptive historical. It's, a, it's something he did in history. It's part of his redemption. And he's marking a new day. So it is a unique event. The day of Pentecost can't be repeated. But it is a picture for us as well today. And we see the same experience happen later on in Acts with other peoples. And then we see from 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 that this experience of tongues, this, this picture of, of the Holy Spirit, this gift of the Holy Spirit, uh, continues for God's people. And I, and I don't believe there's any reason in Scripture to doubt that it continues today. There's, there's nothing I can find in Scripture. People make arguments from history. Um, I think you can make an argument from history, but you can also make a counter-argument from history that this gift has not ceased. And I could take time, I won't do that in this message, to show you throughout history people that have spoken tongues. Does anyone here know what the, who the Lollards were? The English, the Lollards. The Lollards were people that... Uh, got back into the Bible, actually the Latin Bible at the time. And they were called Lollards because Lollard is a, a derisive word for people that speak in tongues. They spoke in tongues back in, was it, 1400s, I think, or so, for the Lollards. Uh, I can talk about others. I won't do that here. So historically, we can make the argument as well that this gift has not ceased. It is a, a picture of the new, tev, te, uh, the new covenant experience of the Holy Spirit. It's a good thing. And God himself has chosen this. This is God's choosing. We may be embarrassed at times, and we'll talk about why at times we're embarrassed. We may be embarrassed at times, but, but we need to remember God chose this as a sign of the experience of the Spirit for us. It's, it's God's choice to give this gift to his people for us to enjoy this. And I'll talk about this later, that we may not all speak in tongues. It's not a gift that's, that's guaranteed to be universal. And if you don't speak in tongues, that's okay. Um, but it is a gift to ask for. It's a good gift that God has given to his church. And he has chosen to mark his new covenant people with this gift. And so should we make it kind of like the weird uncle we hide away in the attic? No. We're to enjoy it. We're to experience it. We're to govern it biblically, and we'll get into that as well. Sometimes the embarrassment comes because people have not governed it biblically. 
And, and so uh, it shows up in places maybe it shouldn't show up, and, and then it just causes some problems. We'll deal with that. We'll talk about what Scripture teaches in terms of that. So this is a good gift, though. It's a good gift from the Lord. It's something to be celebrated and sought and enjoyed because God has given this gift. He's chosen to to show himself in this. He's chosen to bless his people. When you look at people speaking in tongues in the book of Acts, you don't see shame, do you? You see joy. You see people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They're experiencing salvation. And, and, and I don't think they're necessarily thinking, okay, I mean, now I'm going to speak in tongues, you know, and boom, they go. They're just overwhelmed by the experience of the Spirit and the joy that they have in the Lord, and they praise God in this, this previously unlearned language. This is a good thing for us. So let's talk some more about it, and we'll see how far we get today on this. Uh, So this is a redemptive historical sign from God. A redemptive historical sign from God of what he's doing in and through his people. A sign of the new covenant. Tongues are also Godward prayer and praise. They're Godward prayer and praise in our spirits. Godward prayer and praise as well. When we look through scripture, um, if you want to turn, you probably at this point will be in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So you want to turn there and we'll hit on some verses there. We're going to look at how it's explained and how it is God would pray and praise. Paul says in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2, he says, Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For, he, for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. So for the one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God's. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in, in the spirits. So, uh, in Acts chapter 2 as well, as people listen, they say, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So tongues are not prophecy. Tongues are not encouraging others. Nothing wrong with those things. They're not predicting the future. Tongues are Prayer and praise to God. They're Godward expressions of prayer and praise. That's what's going on in tongues. Godward expressions of prayer and praise. We see, see Paul say that over and over again. Uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 14, we see that in Acts 2. It's a Godward prayer and praise to God. So, some people have understood that tongues are prophecy, kind of encoded prophecy, but they're not. Uh, at times, people will, will interpret tongues, I've heard it interpreted, uh, as an encouragement to God's people, but, it, but it's not, at least directly, that. Uh, it's Godward. It's a prayer. It's praise to God in this previously unlearned language coming up from the person's spirit. Their mind is not engaged as in normal speech. It's coming up from their spirit as prayer and praise to God. Uh, so Paul goes on later in chapter 14, uh, talking about it being prayer. He says in verse uh, 14, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind. I will, also, I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Paul's saying, I'm going to use this gift to pray. I'm going to pray with my spirit. I'm going to pray with my mind too. But I'm going to pray with my spirit. I'm going to sing praise with my spirit through this gift. But I'm going to sing praise with my mind, normal singing as well. So it's a a way to pray to God. And and it can be a wonderful blessing. Um, 
in praying to God. I'm going to talk more about the ways it edifies us. But, it, but uh, one story I came across uh, from Sam Storms as well is, is a story of Jackie Pullinger. Jackie Pullinger is a missionary in Hong Kong. I had some pictures to show you, but uh, she's in the walled city of Hong Kong. It's like the worst slums in Hong Kong, full of heroin addicts. And she goes there and ministers to them and brings the gospel. And, uh, and God uses her and, and her, it's a whole organization, powerfully. And Sam Storms relates this uh, story from her ministry. And you can read her book, um, is it Facing the Dragon or something? I, if anyone's read that, uh, about her ministry. But she says, uh, or Sam Storms says about this, perhaps the greatest obstacle to deliverance from drugs is the indescribable and unbearable pain of withdrawal. Perhaps some of us have experienced withdrawal from heroin. And you know about this. The agony of going cold turkey has driven the vast majority of addicts back to their habits. But Jackie made a startling discovery. It was her custom for her new converts to be filled with the Holy Spirit and to receive a prayer language. They always did. But when she observed that when the pain and withdrawal would begin, it would just as quickly end if the individual would begin praying in tongues. It took a while to convince a few of the converts, but the horrors of withdrawal made them desperate. As Jackie and others would pray for them in tongues, they too would cry out to God in their new language. Miraculously and virtually without exception, each one came off drugs without the wrenching pain associated with the experience. That's wonderful if you know about withdrawals from heroin. So this gift is currently being used over there to... uh, I don't know all that's going on. I think in the prayer and praise to God, it's an intercession and God is visiting people. It's a wonderful gift, a wonderful way to pray and praise God. Paul tells us it's in the spirit. It's in our spirit or from our spirits. And this is probably part of what makes it a little wild for us, I think. Because it's pretty clear that our minds are not engaged. He says in verse 14, as I read before, For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I'll pray with my spirit, but I'll pray with my mind also. I'll sing with praise with my spirit, but I'll sing with my mind also. So the, the mind is not engaged. The spirit is. We are, uh, we are body and soul. Two parts. Soul and spirit are used interchangeably in Scripture. Two parts, body and soul. And um, our minds are really part of our body. There's a connection with our soul. But, um, but our spirit is, is distinct. We are spiritual beings. And when you pray... Uh, you pray in tongues, you're praying with your spirit. It's not an ecstatic speech. It's not like it, you lose control and start praying in tongues. Uh, no. It's, it's under control because Paul tells the Corinthians, control this thing, right? He wouldn't tell them that if they couldn't. Uh, they control it. Uh, but it is not, our minds are not fully engaged. And yet, Paul still says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Even though it seems like, boy, if you're, I mean, this is a gift, your mind's not engaged, is, that's just too freaky. Uh, But Paul says, I thank God that I pray in tongues more than all of you. This is a good gift. This is a good thing. I will pray with my spirit. I'll pray with my mind. I'll sing praises with my spirit. I'll sing praises with my mind. This is a good thing. Paul's not afraid of it. I don't think we're to be either. But it is weird. And this is like something we, we really can't explain to people either. Can you imagine, you know, explain to somebody, you've, you know, I, I got this gift of tongues and, and uh, and they ask, well, what is it? Well, it's this gift where I speak in a foreign language I've never learned before, and it's a prayer and praise to God. And, and, uh, and the, really? Do you know what you're saying? Well, no, I'm, I'm uttering mysteries in my spirits. My mind's not engaged in the use of this gift. 
Um, it's my spirit. No, what do you mean that my mind's usually not engaged anyhow? No, that's not what I'm saying. It's, it's my spirit. Uh, it, it could be an awkward interchange to tell people. It's just outside the norm. But Scripture teaches us that's what's going on. And I think that is the point, at least part of the point, that makes it uncomfortable for us. Um, and this isn't a gift that's meant to go out into public on the street corner and start praying in tongues. We're going to teach about that. This is a gift for your personal edification. Um, it's a gift for prayer and praise to God. Um, it looks like Paul, as he teaches the Corinthians about controlling it in public place, uh, only uses that gift, uh, inferring from what he says, privately. So it's a more private gift. It uh, doesn't mean you have to be don't ask, don't tell on it, but it, but it is more of a private, not a public gift. So that alleviates some of that temptation, but also just this whole thing that my mind's not engaged. It's hard for us. It's hard for us, I think, as Westerners, because uh, we have come under, in modernism, what's called rationalism. Rationalism. Okay? God wants us to be rational. We are rational beings. We are to reason. We are to use our minds. But the problem is we take it a step further and we say the mind is the ultimate determiner of truth. That's what rationalism is. It's basically saying truth is only what I understand to be true. That's humanistic. That's modernistic. That's not true. And it's actually, if you follow that, if you follow that line of thinking, you'll end up at that I don't know anything that, but that I exist. That's where Descartes went with that thinking. Uh, rationalism leads to a dead end. But we are all uh, influenced by rationalism, this idea that, that if I can't understand it, it's not worth anything. I'm not going to mess with it. But that's not biblical. Biblically is something is true because it's true. And something is true because truth itself, God himself, determines it to be so. Whether we know it or not, whether we understand it or not. So truth is not based on what I understand. It's based on who God is. My job is to the best I can, by his grace, to understand what he understands. Then I start to understand truth. But truth is not relative to me and my understanding. It's relative to God. So the question is, in this gift, where is your anchor on truth? Are you anchoring yourself in your own ability to understand this gift and feel comfortable? Or are you anchoring in God, who is the ultimate truth? Can you trust God to lead you in this gift? Yes, there's a way to use our minds. That's why I'm speaking to you right now. You're to think through it. You're to reason yourself. But ultimately, let's not hook, put, put the, hang our hat on whether you understand it or not, whether your mind's always engaged. But in God himself who gives us the truth. So it could be that we're rationalistic or we're afraid of our rationalistic friends, whatever. That is an issue for us and hindering us. I know it is for me at times. Let me, uh, I'm just wrapping up. We're going to take two weeks for this anyhow. I'm going to talk about how it's in an unknown language, but I think I'm going to do that next week because it's going to take a little longer. So I'm going to talk about how it's an unknown language, what that means. I'm going to address uh, the question, the common question for people who are very sincerely seeking the Lord and saying, you know, when I look in Acts 2, I see these languages being understood by people. Uh, from different countries, all these different countries. And then when I see modern tongues, I don't see that, and that's documented, by the way, that most modern tongues are not regular languages, though there are reliable testimonies of people uh, speaking in tongues and it being understood in part by people who speak other languages. I was present for one of those instances once. Uh, but by and large, it's not a normal language. That is true. 
So people say, well, in Acts 2, uh, it looks like a normal language, so what's this deal? And what I want to talk about and present to you is that is from Scripture, and I want you to ground it in Scripture, that it's not to be expected to be a normal language. That's Paul's assumption in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I'm going to do my best to help you see that and, and uh, understand that. So we'll talk about that next week, though. And maybe in the meantime, you can read through that and, and uh, be ready for that. But I just want to finish, if the band could come up too, to talk about this gift that is given to us. It's this, it's this gift given. It's a sign, a sign of the new covenant experience of, of God, this redemptive historical sign of God's work, this wonderful um, new life we have in God where he's bringing us together, unifying us around the one purpose of building the kingdom. It's this gift that is speaking in this foreign language. It's from the Spirit. It's Godward. It's prayer and praise. And it is for personal edification. That's important for us to understand. That's the difference with this gift. That's kind of what influences how Paul teaches the Corinthians. This is a gift that is really for your own prayer life. Really the intention is for your own prayer and praise life. That's the point. And it can edify publicly if it's interpreted. But I I would believe that that's the exception of the gift. Uh, Its main point is to build you up. So Paul says this when he's teaching in 1 Corinthians. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 14.4, I think it is, the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. But the one who prophesies builds up the church. And then he says, now I want you all to speak in tongues. So Paul's not saying, when he says it builds yourself up and prophecy builds up the church, he's not saying, so don't be so selfish, stop, stop speaking in tongues. He doesn't mean that. He means, guys, when you're together publicly, use the gifts that build up the body. And then he says, I want you to speak in tongues. And he says, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But he's basically saying, I do that for my own edification in the appropriate context for that, for my own edification. Prayer personal praise. And it is this gift that is given by God to build us up. Romans chapter 8, 26 to 27. I'm going to read it to you and just, uh, you don't need to turn there. It says, likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Talking about the Christian life and the trials at times. Likewise the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Romans 8 teaches us that the Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit intercedes uh, for us with groanings too deep for words. And he, he who searches hearts knows where the mind of the Spirit is because the Spirit intercedes. So the Spirit helps us. The groaning, he says earlier in that passage, that, that we all groan. We groan because we're caught between the, the old way, Babel, and the new heaven, the new earth. We groan. Life is hard. We groan. And God helps us by the Spirit. Now, that passage in Romans is speaking, I think, broadly, not just about tongues, that, that the Spirit intercedes. Whether you have the gift of tongues, the Spirit intercedes. We groan before the Lord. The Spirit knows those things. He knows what's in our heart. He knows what's in our spirit. Sometimes we don't even know. We don't know what's going on. We just know, we just know we're groaning. God knows. That's, that's encouraging, isn't it? Whether you have tongues or not, God knows the precise meaning of those groans, even though we may not. And and the Spirit intercedes to the Father. But one application of that is the gift of tongues. 
You're able to pray from your spirit to the Lord. You're able to praise God. You're able to connect with the Lord in ways you may not understand. And I've found that this gift works this way. I think for those who enjoy the gift, they've experienced this. Uh, I've told you guys before, as a pastor, I seek to pray regularly for you guys, and for God's purposes in and through us for this area and so forth. But there are days, and as many days, I come in, and all I have is a groan. I mean, I can go through my list. I have a list. You guys are on the list. I can go through my list, and I know how to do that, and I can pray the list, but, but there's sometimes it's like the list isn't what's happening today. It's groaning before the Lord, because I know. I know the challenge for some of you guys. I know the obstacles. At times in my own life, there's things, and there's just a groan. And I could just pray that way silently before the Lord, just lifting him up, lifting those things up, but I use the gift of tongues. I, I experience that gift, and I will pray in tongues. And there are times when I'll pray, and I'll, I'll pray a half hour, just in tongues, walking around. If you ever come here, you're not going to be freaked out. Don't worry. And you, run, you come in on me. I'm not, I'm not, like, foaming at the mouth and stuff. And you might not even know I'm praying in tongues, but I'm just quietly praying in tongues as I walk around and pray. And so often, after a half hour or whatever time of doing that, there's just a sense of peace. I don't know what I've said, but in a sense, I've released the burden to the Lord. And there's a peace and a sense, okay, now move on. You've got the rest of your day to do. You've got things to do. Now, I do that when I pray with my mind in English, too. I still have that sense as well often. But often, that's how it is. This is a gift that can work for us that way. It's a gift that's a prevalent gift. I think the public gift is an exception. It's a rare one. But I think the prayer language, the personal one, is a prevalent one. I can't guarantee that God will indeed give you the gift. But He's gracious. He loves to give us gifts. He knows that, that we've grown. He understands. He wants to help us. He wants us to help us to pray. So it's a gift to ask Him for. And as we go through this little mini-series on this, just really this week and next, I want to encourage you to ask for the gift. To not be afraid of it. To know that it's good. To know that there's an appropriate way to exercise the gift. And we'll get into that more next week. But to see it as a blessing and a good thing that will help you to pray, to praise, to, to be built up yourself and to in turn bless others. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for all your gifts. All your gifts are good. And all the things you've chosen to do are good. And Lord, we confess our need to understand this particular one better. Lord, it, it can be awkward. And you understand all the reasons why that may be true. There may be legitimate reasons where it's been misused, but also, Lord, fear and misunderstanding. So help us to understand you and your truth. That we might be built up. That we might walk with you. That we might fellowship with you. That we might serve you and serve others, Lord, by your grace in this gift and any others you would choose to give, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand together and close in song.